Welcome to episode 38 of the Neuro Network. Today, we're exploring a riveting topic that bridges the gap between exercise and the aging brain. So if you're aging every single day, just as all of us are, you're interested in exercise or enjoy exercising, and you enjoy the ability of your brain to recruit your muscles and the effects that exercise has on that, then stay tuned. All right, so today we're going to be talking about a groundbreaking study titled Aging Attenuates Exercise Enhanced Motor Cortical Plasticity, published in one of my favorite journals, the Journal of Physiology. The group was uh, led by Dylan Curtis et al. at the Turner Institute for Brain and Mental Health, School of Psychological Sciences in Monash University in Australia, Melbourne. So what the study is looking at is is diving into how aging or our advancing years affect the brain's ability to adapt and grow in response to exercise. And this process, this process is known as motor cortical plasticity. So as we've sort of heard many times in the past, exercise is a very potent stimulus for many things, including muscle growth, health, all that kind of stuff. But one of the important things about exercise is the mental effects that it has and, and sort of the the cognitive enhancing abilities that it can give us. And not only does it enhance our cognitive function, but one of the main effects of exercise is to enhance the efficiency of our motor cortices in our brain in order to recruit our muscles. And this is very important for becoming a more efficient machine, as you will, as you're starting to get the training stimulus effect, uh, as you're exercising more. But one of the other things is that it's very important for things like physical rehabilitation. And so if there's any sort of problem with the ability of the brain to recruit different muscles, it's important to understand what sort of stimuli or what sort of protocols can be put in place in order to restore the ability to, of that motor cortices or the, these motor cortex in our brain in order to actually recruit our muscles to uh, make us have motor function. So for years, we've known, like I said, that cardiorespiratory exercise in particular, and so that's things like biking, like running, like cross-country skiing, they're very potent stimuli in order to modulate this motor cortical plasticity, especially for many studies that has been shown in young adults. Um, but the, the million dollar question really is what happens as we age? Because you could argue that this becomes even more important as we age, as we start to have sort of muscle atrophy just as a means of, of, of our aging. It's important to understand whether or not the ability of our brain to rewire itself in order to have a greater effect on recruiting our muscles, does the exercise effect on that or the exercise ability to enhance that function change as we get older? So does the fountain of youth that is exercise hold the same promise for our brain, brain's plasticity as we begin to age? And so this was one of the questions that was asked by the study. So Curtin and colleagues embarked on a journey to answer this question. They used a technique. Uh, it's called tr transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS for short. Uh, and it allows you to peek into the brains, if you will, of young and old adults is what they used in order to measure the electrical activity uh, or the electrical symphony that exercise conducts within our motor cortex. So again, why is it important? Like I said, understanding the relationship between exercise and our brain's ability, our adaptability is, is very crucial, right? It can inform everything from rehabilitation strategies to daily exercise recommendations, again, especially in the aging population. And on top of this, 
I think it was just a really cool study. And the way that they, they did this and the way that they controlled for everything, I think, was was fantastic. Uh, and so it really gives an idea of how a very good exercise physiology study is done. All right, so how was the study actually done? I'm going to actually walk through the methods uh, just because I think it was a, a pretty well-conducted study. So uh, for the participants of the study, they tested 20 younger uh, subjects and 20 older subjects. The younger subjects had a mean age of 25.3 years old, plus or minus four, and the older adults had a mean age of 64.1 years old, plus or minus 6.5 years. For the inclusion criteria, the inclusion criteria for the younger adults was between 18 to 35 years old. Uh, so this is just like the the criteria that were when you're screening for subjects in the study, like what what criteria should they meet in order to be part of the study? So for the younger adults, it was 18 to 35 years old. For the young, for the older adults, it was 50 to 75 years old. The exclusion criteria, so this is once you have a group of subjects uh, that are willing to do the study, what excludes people from doing the studies? So the exclusion criteria were any personal history of neurological disease or moderate to severe psychiatric illness, uh, chronic or recent use of drugs of addiction or age-related cognitive impairment which could be assessed uh, in the Montreal Cognitive Assessment as a score of less than 26. Also, any contraindications to transcranial magnetic stimulation, which of course would be bad, or any sort of contraindications for high-intensity exercise. Uh, three of the subjects in the study were actually taking a low dose of an antidepressant with an SSRI, but otherwise all participants were free from any psychotropic medications. And of course, most importantly, all subjects consented to do the study. For the actual subjects themselves in the younger group, there was a, uh, a split, 14 females, 6 males. For the older group, they had 11 females, 9 males. Uh, for the body mass index, uh, the younger individuals had a BMI of 22.9 on average, plus or minus 3, and the olders had a BMI of 26.15, uh, plus or minus 3.63, so they were a little bit uh, heavier in the older adults, which is oftentimes the case in many of these types of studies. And the younger adults, the formal education was about 16 and a half years of education. And in the older adults, 16.3. So they had about the same amount of education. It was interesting that they even uh, plotted handedness. So whether you're right or left-handed, of course, the majority in both groups were right-handed and a couple left-handers did exist. They also quantified and gave the mean physical activity levels in both the younger and the older. And they quantified this by using the IPAQ met minute per week. So what does that mean? The IPAQ met minute per week refers to a method that quantifies the amount of physical activity an individual engages in over a week using different metrics and or tools. So let's break it down. So IPAQ, IPAQ stands for the International Physical Activity Questionnaire. It's a widely used tool for assessing physical activity in individuals across studies. So the IPAC collects information about uh, things like the frequency, duration, and intensity of physical activities performed over a given period, typically within the last week. Now, MET, M-E-T, stands for the metabolic equivalent. It's used as an estimate of the amount of energy expended during physical activity. So basically, one MET is defined as the amount of oxygen consumed while sitting at rest. And it's roughly equal to about 3.5 mLs of oxygen per kilogram of body weight per minute. And so this is a concept that gives many students a huge headache the first time that they understand this in exercise physiology. But essentially, a MET, you can think of it as metabolic equivalent. It's just how much 
energy is being expended during a physical activity that's scaled in a way such that you can uh, assess how active you are relative to when you're sitting at rest. So then if you take the met minute, it's a metric that combines the intensity of an activity in METs with the duration of the activity at minutes. And it's a way to express the total amount of physical activity that a person engages in over a particular time period. So for instance, uh, an activity with a MET value of five performed at 30 minutes would be an amount of 150 MET minutes or five METs times 30 minutes. Now they had MET minutes per week, which denotes the uh, total MET minutes accumulated over the course of a week. So it provides a cumulative measure of physical activity or physical activity intensity and duration over the time frame. So when you see physical activity levels in the in the units of IPAC MET minute per week, it denotes uh, a method of assessing an individual's physical activity levels over a week by using the International Physical Activity Questionnaire to collect data, which is then expressed in terms of MET minutes per week to provide a quantifiable measure of physical activity level. Woo! So it's just a number that tells you how active were these people over the last week. And it was roughly pretty similar for both groups. There was no statistical significance and difference. The younger individuals had a physical activity level of 5,024 uh, versus the olders had a, a physical activity of 5,683. Now, the interesting thing, though, was that the younger individuals had mean physical activity levels of 5,024 plus or minus 4,957. So that just means that some individuals were very active and other ones were not active at all. And so you had this huge range of people in the younger group, whereas in the older group, it was 5683 plus or minus only 389, which is interesting because that means that the older individuals, the large majority of them tended to engage in regular physical activity levels within a given week. They also gave the hospital anxiety depression scale, the HADS, and to no surprise, the younger individuals had a higher, um, but it was not significant, but they had a higher uh, hospital anxiety depression scale of 8.5 compared to 6.3 for the older. However, again, it wasn't statistically significant, so there was a spread in that. In the older group, they also tested blood pressure, gave a Montreal cognitive assessment scale, and they tested the VO2 peak. All right, so for experimental design, the participants completed two sessions involving transcranial magnetic stimulation and either exercise or rest. All sessions were separated by a washout period of greater than 72 hours, which should be enough to uh, or to reverse the effects of the transcranial magnetic stimulation such that you don't have a previous session influencing the next. And so it's kind of important in these studies to give a, a proper amount of time in between these. Uh, the order of the sessions for, they did, you know, they did some baseline sessions and they did sessions two and three, which sessions two and three, again, were the transcranial magnetic stimulation, either with or without exercise. Uh, and they were pseudo-randomized as to which individuals were going to start with the exercise followed by TMS and which ones were going to be uh, doing rest first followed by TMS. So you have to kind of randomize that so that there's no confounding factors there. Right, so baseline then, transcranial magnetic stimulation measurements of excitatory and inhibitory cortical activity were taken on all of the participants to start the study. Participants then completed 20 minutes of high-intensity interval cycling and or active rest on a stationary ergometer, which is a bicycle, followed by 10-minute cool-down period. 
repeat TMS measurements were taken before and after intermittent data burst stimulation, a way to stimulate the brain at 5, 15, 25 minute intervals. So the transcranial magnetic stimulation sessions were scheduled at the same time of the day, again, to reduce intra-individual diurnal effects of TMS responses. Okay, so that's just sort of the basic experimental design. Okay, so just so that we're all on the same page, they took the individuals, they did a baseline transcranial magnetic stimulation where they put some electrodes on the brain, they stimulate it, and they measure the effect in a muscle. They had the subjects exercise using an intensity, a high-intensity interval session of exercise. They then did a post-exercise transcranial magnetic stimulation to see how exercise affected that. Then they used their stimulation protocol, the theta burst stimulation, intermittent theta burst stimulation protocol, which should enhance the transcranial magnetic stimulation. Then they did another post theta burst stimulation protocol, transcranial magnetic stimulation test to see how the theta intermittent theta burst stimulation to the motor cortex affects the ability of the transcranial magnetic stimulations or the excitatory inhibitory ratio uh, within the brain. And just to clarify, the transcranial magnetic stimulation is a protocol that's used to stimulate the brain that allows you to measure things such as the uh, balance of excitation and inhibition within these motor cortices. And so there's different ways to do that. So let's first then dive a little bit into the actual technique itself. And so basically what you do is you uh, put electrodes on a subject's skull over the motor cortex. Uh, and then you also put a recording EMG, electromyogram recording on, in this case, they use the force, first dorsal interosseous muscle of the dominant hand. So the uh, this is just a muscle that allows you to move your fingers. Uh, the idea is that you're going to stimulate the part of the brain using transcranial magnetic stimulation in order to give activity of that muscle. Right. So the surface EMG is used to record the muscle activity because uh, the EMG measures electrical activity that's produced by skeletal muscles, which reflects the muscle activity and or function. The electrode on the muscle is placed in a belly tendon montage, is what it's called, uh, which just means that one of the electrodes is placed over the muscle belly, which is the thicker central portion of the muscle, and the other is placed near the tendon of the muscle, and that arrangement just helps to capture the electrical activity of the muscle uh, effectively. Okay, now for the transcranial magnetic stimulation. Uh, there's two different ways that you can do There's many different ways that you can do this. The, they, they used uh, two, both single pulse and paired pulse transcranial magnetic stimulation. So single pulse transcranial magnetic stimulation is used to evaluate cortical motor uh, excitability, which reflects the responsiveness of the motor cortex to stimulation. So by applying a single magnetic pulse, uh, the researchers can observe and measure the resulting motor evoked potential or the, again, you stimulate the brain with magnets and you measure the activity that occurs within the muscle, which in this case, they're measuring the activity that occurs in the muscle of the hand. Now, typically the intensity of the stimulus is adjusted to produce a stable uh, motor evoked potential of approximately one millivolt at baseline, which indicates a controlled setup where stimulus intensity is calibrated to achieve specific response amplitude, which ensures consistency and, of course, reliability in the measurements. So then for a paired pulse transcranial magnetic stimulation, in the paired pulse TMS, two pulses are delivered in quick succession, and this is setup is used to assess intracortical inhibitory and facilitatory mechanisms. So 
Uh, two specific measures are being examined. First is the short interval intracortical inhibition, SICI, and the intracortical facilitation, which is meant to reflect the inhibitory and facilitatory or excitatory processes within the motor cortex, respectively. Now, for the paired pulses, again, you get two stimulus, uh, two stimuli, and the first of the two stimuli. Uh, or, or zaps into the brain, if you will, is a, called a subthreshold conditioning stimulus, uh, which is a stimulus intensity at which below the threshold needed to produce a visible motor response. And it's this conditioning stimulus precedes a super threshold test stimulus, which is a stimulus intensity above the threshold level in the paired pulse TMS protocol. And so basically, uh, you give a small pulse at first, uh, which doesn't give a response to the muscle, and then you give a big response second, and that gives the response to the muscle. So the pairing of the sub-threshold condition with a super-threshold test stimulus helps you to explore the intercortical neural circuits and the influence on the motor cortex excitability. And then the, the super-threshold test stimulus is the stronger stimulus, like I said, uh, and the interaction between the two stimuli provides information about the excitatory and the inhibitory process in the motor cortex. So how does this actually do it? In the context of the paired pulse transcranial magnetic stimulation protocols, like the ones mentioned, uh, excitatory and inhibitory processes within the motor cortex are differentiated based on the timing and the intensity of the stimuli applied and the resultant motor evoked potentials. So, Here's how each of those is then discerned. For the short interval intercortical inhibition, this response or is revealed when a subthreshold conditioning stimulus is followed by a super threshold test stimuli at very short intervals, typically like one to five milliseconds. So if the conditioning stimulus, that small initial stimulus, inhibits the response to the test stimulus, the second stimulus, that results in a smaller motor evoked potential, than what is elicited by the test stimulus alone, this indicates inhibitory processes at work. And so essentially, if you just give a big stimulus first and you look at how it affects the muscle, then you do the paired pulse stimulus protocol where you give a small pulse followed by a big pulse. If that small pulse makes the big pulse response smaller compared to what it was before having any small pulse before it, then you would say that you get an inhibitory process. So if you think about uh, basically like if I swing a baseball bat and that ball goes like 300 yards, right? That's your baseline response. And then if I kick you in the butt prior to swinging the bat, and if I kicked you in the butt and then you swung the bat and the ball only went 250 yards instead of 300 yards, you would get a short interval intercortical inhibition response because that kicking in the butt or that small conditioning stimulus uh, inhibited the normal ability of that swing uh, of the baseball bat in order to make the ball fly as far. Great. Now for the excitatory response, it's intercortical facilitation, ICF. That occurs when uh, the interval between the subthreshold conditioning stimulus and the superthreshold test stimulus is slightly longer usually between 10 to 15 milliseconds. And so in this case, instead of kicking you in the butt, let's say that I patted you on the back. And then we waited longer between the patting on the back and the swinging of the bat. And now patting on the back, you wait a second, then you swing the bat, and now the baseball flies 350 yards. You can say, okay, now we have a facilitation response. We're patting you on the bat, then makes the bat 
the the baseball fly even further, uh, or in this case, the initial stimulus then now enhances the response to this test stimulus. It leads to a larger motor evoked potential than the one produced by the test stimulus alone that suggests an excitatory process. So these processes are thought to then reflect the balance of GABAergic inhibitory and glutamatergic excitatory intracortical synaptic activity. I'm not so completely sold on that, but it is what it is. Um, and the specific timing then and strength of the stimuli are then very crucial as they then exploit the distinct temporal dynamics of the synaptic neurotransmission. Again, I'm not so sold that transcranial magnetic stimulation is specifically changing GABAergic and glutamatergic. I think there's a lot of different uh, pathways that are being stimulated and inhibited, and it's not just GABAergic and glutamatergic, but again, just on face value, that's sort of what they were testing. All right, so then lastly, the intermittent theta burst stimulation, which I mentioned earlier, which is what they did after exercise as well. It's a form of non-invasive stimulation, uh, again, that uses transcranial magnetic stimulation, but it does it in a little bit of a different way. So uh, unlike conventional transcranial magnetic stimulation, which delivers these single or paired pulses at a low frequency, the intermittent theta burst stimulation delivers bursts of uh, three pulses at a frequency of 50 hertz with the bursts repeated at a frequency of five hertz. And so this pattern is intended to mimic the natural theta rhythm of the brain. Now, the intermittent nature of the intermittent theta burst stimulation reflects the fact that the stimulation is delivered in short bursts of two seconds of stimulation followed by periods of no stimulation. So I, ITBS has been explored uh, for its potential in treating various neurological and psychiatric conditions, things like depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder. It can also be used for research purposes to explore, again, like these uh, authors did, to explore brain function and the, the mechanisms underlying various uh, neurological conditions. So one of the key advantages of uh, intermittent theta burst stimulation over traditional transcranial magnetic stimulation is that can, it can induce long-lasting changes in the brain excitability with shorter treatment sessions. And additionally, uh, ITBS may be more tolerable and comfortable uh, treatment option for some individuals. So the regulatory status, though, of ITBS uh, can vary by country and regions. In some places, it may be approved for clinical settings, and in others, uh, it's only allowed to be used in research settings. But either way, theta burst stimulation is a promising technique that uh, is still continuing to be explored in clinical and research settings in order to understand the full range of potential benefits and, more importantly, applications that it has. All right, so back to the results of the study itself. After the participants completed their high-intensity interval cycling, the researchers measured the brain's responses to the transcranial magnetic stimulation. They were looking for two things. They were looking for either an increase in excitation, uh, which they claim is glutamatergic excitation. Think of it like the brain's accelerator pedal, if you will, and a decrease in GABAergic inhibition, which is the inhibitory response, uh, which you can, I guess, think of it like the brain's break if you keep it very simplistic. So uh, in the younger adults, the results were pretty much as expected. Exercise uh, increased the excitatory response. So they revved up the brain's accelerator, if you think of it that way. And the inhibitory response was re uh, reduced. So the break in our analogy was loosened. So the motor cortical plasticity was enhanced, showing that their brains uh, were essentially primed and ready to adapt to learn to recover, things like that. Now, when they turn to the older adults, 
the picture kind of changed. Yes, there was an increase in excitation and a decrease in inhibition after the exercise, but the change was not as robust uh, as in the, the younger group. So the older adults' brains showed an attenuated response to the intermittent theta burst stimulation, and it means that the exercise did not enhance the brain's plasticity to the same extent as the younger adults. It was a very significant finding, right? Because it suggests that as we age, our brain's ability to use exercise as a tool for plasticity might not be as sharp as it was before. But why then does it matter? Well, like I said, motor cortical plasticity isn't just about being able to pick up dance moves or, or master a golf swing or anything like that. It's about the brain's resilience, if you will. It's the capacity to recover from strokes, to adapt to the wear and tear of life and to keep movements smooth and coordinated as we age. And the the study results kind of paint a, a complex picture then of aging. They suggest that while exercise still does have beneficial effects on the brain's excitatory and inhibitory balance, the extent to which it can boost plasticity may diminish with age. Now, it's important to note the study didn't say that exercise isn't beneficial. This is a very important point exercise is still very beneficial. You're still getting plasticity as a result of exercise in older adults. However, it's just not to the same extent as they saw from the individuals. So it's, again, the study is not saying that exercise isn't beneficial for older adults. Far from it. It's, instead, it, it, it highlighted that the relationship between exercise and the brain is nuanced. It's influenced by the ticking clock of our biology, right? So exercise is still beneficial for motor cortical plasticity, even in older adults. The only difference is that that response does not happen as robustly as it does in younger individuals. So, of course, these findings open up kind of a world of questions. Could it be that different types or intensity of exercise might yield different results? Are older individuals and their effects of motor cortical plasticity from the exercise more adapt to different types of exercise, different protocols of exercise? Are there other ways to enhance the plasticity in the aging brain that we haven't discovered yet? There's a whole slew of questions that are uh, still yet to be unanswered. One of the things, though, that was interesting in the study uh, that's been shown many times before is that even though we talk about exercise enhancing motocortical plasticity when you're doing these interval sessions, it's, it's, it's caveated with the fact that these interval sections typically have to be not to the point of complete exhaustion or to complete failure. If you do go to complete exhaustion or complete failure with these high-intensity interval exercises, regardless if the patients are, or the subjects are young or if they're old, instead of getting an excitatory response in this motor cortical plasticity in order to enhance the ability of these motor cortices to uh, recruit your muscles, you actually get the exact opposite. You you actually get a uh, inhibition such that your high-intensity activity to the point of fatigue or exhaustion uh, downplays the ability of uh, subsequently for these motor cortex to recruit the muscles again. And so uh, it's one thing to keep in mind that while high-intensity exercise to the point of fatigue can be beneficial in some circumstances when we're talking about motor cortical plasticity uh, you, uh, for, let's say, like a therapeutic use in order to strengthen the ability of these motor cortices to recruit the muscles, then you might not want to go toward to all the way to the point of complete exhaustion or complete failure because you're going to get the opposite effect of what you might be looking for. 
So after the study, the researchers have certainly laid the groundwork, but it's just the beginning. Again, as we continue to unravel many, many mysteries of the brain, studies like this one are, are I think they're kind of crucial, like signposts that kind of guide the way uh, to a future where uh, we can study aging. All right, great. So what does it all mean? Or as my uh, PhD advisor would say, what does it mean? Uh, so as we unpack the findings from the study, uh, we certainly enter a space of contemplation and curiosity, which is a, a sign of a good study. So the study's results are, I guess you could say it's like a mosaic of insights. On one hand, we have clear evidence that exercise does indeed stimulate the brain's plasticity mechanisms, both in the young and the old. But on the other hand, we see that the stimulation is not as pronounced in the older adults. It's a, it's a, Nuanced discovery when that adds a layer of complexity to our understanding of aging and brain health. In young adults, the, the brain's response to exercise is robust. It's a testament to the adaptability of a youthful nervous system, right? But as we age, the adaptability appears to wane off. Question is why? What changes in the brain's neurochemical environment as we grow older that might actually explain the attenuated response? Sometimes some scientists speculate that it could be due to a reduction in neurotrophic factors. These are proteins that play a critical role in survival and growth of neurons. Some of the most famous ones are brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which was one of the seminal molecules, I guess, that you could say that led to the exercise-induced neuroplasticity event that we can record. So basically when, when, when someone exercises, especially with cardiovascular exercises, it releases something called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is almost like brain fertilizer, if you will. Uh, and it's necessary in order to have new uh, brain growth, if you will, and to lay down new synaptic connections within the brain. And so uh, some studies suggest that having uh, the perfect amount of brain-derived neurotrophic factor is essential for regenerating parts of the brain uh, throughout all years of life. Uh, whereas deficits in brain-derived neurotrophic factor can lead to many different uh, neuropathologies. So whether aging uh, changes the amount of these growth factors, of course, is, is the question that could be asked. Uh, others suggest that changes in the brain's vascular system, uh, uh, the stiffening of the blood vessels, changing in different capillary densities, uh, these provide blood and consequently, of course, oxygen and nutrients to the brain cells could be a contributing factor. As we age, we might not have as efficient of a vascular system. You can even notice this in the periphery, right? Uh, many times as you age, your hands and your feet start to become a little bit colder. Some people say, oh, I have bad circulation, right? Just as you age, the blood vessels begin to become stiffer. They have more plaques that start to accumulate. They're less responsive dilation to constriction. And this is certainly not unique to the peripheral system. It happens in the brain as well. And so if this happens in the brain, of course, it can change the ability of these cells to get uh, the nutrients. But let's not forget the bigger picture. The study isn't a verdict, but a single piece in a larger puzzle, right? It doesn't diminish the value of exercise for older adults. Rather, it highlights the need for tailored approaches that consider the changing landscape of the aging brain. So what about the limitations of the study? Like all research, again, it's not without its constraints, the sample size, the specific exercise protocol used, the measurement techniques, all these factors play a role in how we interpret the results and what we can generalize from them. Future research then could expand on these results, of course, by exploring different types of exercise, varying intensities and durations, and even the impact of combining physical activity with cognitive challenges. The goal, of course, to find the sweet spot that maximizes brain health and plasticity throughout 
the lifespan. All right, so what are the actual implications then of the studies themselves? Again, the study underscores, if you will, uh, the adaptability of the brain. And while aging may bring challenges to our brain's plasticity, exercise remains a very potent ally in that fight. It's a reminder that staying active is not just about physical health, but it's also nurturing your brain's vitality. For older adults, the research could be uh, somewhat of a beacon guiding the development of exercise programs specifically designed to support and enhance brain function. Again, it's not just about the quantity of the exercise, but the quality of the exercise itself. So tailored programs that take into account the unique needs of an aging brain could help maximize the cognitive benefits of exercise. Uh, on a society level, of course, the implications are vast. The populations around the world living longer, there's going to be a need to maintain cognitive health later in life. Um, and so that's a very pressing issue. Of course, the study uh, could influence public health policies, encouraging the integration of brain health into physical fitness standards and recommendations. Now, this is sort of pie in the sky, but uh, nonetheless, it does sort of bring out the broader implication of some of the uh, topics that may be discussed. So as we near the end of the episode, we've now seen uh, the study by Curtin and his colleagues, which, again, sheds light on the subtle ways of our brain's capacity for plasticity, the ability to learn and adapt, and shows that it shifts as we age. So while well, the findings suggest that the capacity, again, may diminish, it's far from a signal to slow down. Instead, it's a bit of a call to action to prompt uh, a prompt to adapt our approach to exercise as we grow older, which is probably not a bad thing to do. So remember, the essence of the research isn't to discourage, but to guide, to fine-tune strategies for maintaining cognitive ability and to enhance the role of exercise in supporting a resilient brain throughout our lifespan. So what's the takeaway? Of course, keep moving, keep challenging the brain, and stay engaged with latest research. Whether in your 20s or in your 70s, the message is clear. Your brain loves when you exercise. So does your body. The benefits extend far beyond the muscle and the bone. With that, www.theneuronetwork.com, uh, Apple, Spotify, Google, any of the major podcast players. Have a good week.